I'm Betsy Kaplan here with Kion Wolf asking uh, during your podcast. I'm not sure what time you're listening to this, <laughs> but we're glad you tune in. We're glad you tune in. I hope every day, but whenever you can. So give us a call, but you have to support the show. We can't do it without your support. 1-800-584-2788. Go online at WNPR.org. And just like you made the great decision to listen to this podcast, please continue to make great decisions by being a member or renewing your membership. If you don't remember the last time you renewed your membership, then it's probably time to renew it. That's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem. But you're going to solve it because you're a public radio listener and that's what you do. So call 1-800-584-2788 or go to WNPR.org slash donate. And and thank you. Enjoy the podcast. So I've been thinking a lot lately about even the philosophical underpinnings of this whole country, this whole American experiment, you know, and it's a set of ideas that was passed forward from Immanuel Kant to Thomas Locke to, uh, to John Locke to Thomas Paine. You know, that idea that we really do know, we have the almost inner capacity to apprehend what is just and what is unjust, what's right, what's wrong. You know, it's there in us. You know, when you're watching a documentary about something that's obviously manifestly wrong, you can feel it kind of gnawing at you. But what we don't always know is what to do. Uh, A lot of times we just sort of stop there, that, okay, I just saw something that's wrong and it shouldn't be like that. We don't know what to do, who to call, how to act. So today we're going to talk to some people who who figured out what to do. Uh, They figured it out under the worst possible circumstances uh, imaginable, Uh, but they uh, have managed to take uh, those terrible circumstances and to accomplish something, something very important. So, and, and in the final segment of the show, we're going to talk in a more general way about, you know, what, what people do. You, you see it now with the, uh, we were just talking before air about the Parkland kids and now another cohort of younger people trying to deal, do something about climate change, realizing that maybe the power does reside with ordinary people if they can act in collective and constructive ways. Uh, In the studio with me are Mike and Kristen Song. They are parents and gun control activists who spearheaded the passage of a bipartisan gun safety bill called Ethan's Law. They founded the Ethan Song Foundation. Kristen is an attorney. Uh, Mike is the CEO of GetControl.net. And um, maybe we should just very quickly begin by reminding people, uh, um, Kristen, what what Ethan's Law is. What, What is the law that we did pass here in Connecticut? Ethan's law requires that all firearms be secured. If you have a minor in the home or if you have an inappropriate person in the home that should not have access to guns. Um, and, and so obviously this begins from your own story, Mike. And for people, I think most people in Connecticut know or at least know parts of this story, but, but maybe we, we have to remind them. How did this whole thing begin for, for you two? Well, uh, Ethan uh, had a friend, a neighbor whose home he played in and unbeknownst to us for uh, months, uh, guns had been accessible to kids in that home. And it was, uh, the guns were never checked in on. Uh, These guns uh, were produced from, you know, various places, according to police, uh, the police shared with us. So one day, uh, Ethan, uh, you know, hugged his mom. He had gotten his braces off earlier that day. And uh, Kristen had had a wonderful morning with him. They actually spent some extra time together because of the braces. And off he went, and he, he never came back. And he's been in 10,000 places, but in a home with an unsecured gun and a kind of a relaxed, cavalier attitude towards safe gun storage. Well, 10 minutes later, he was dead. And uh, it's, it's been just the, the tragedy of our lives. You can imagine Kristen, uh, she tells this story, uh, and it brings people to tears. But she was sitting there, and the police officers come across the front lawn, 
And it's kind of like in that movie Saving Brian Ryan where the mom just collapses. And so from there, from that tragic moment, uh, you know, kind of a nightmare unfolded. If you can imagine driving to the hospital and they didn't tell us what was wrong. They said, you just have to go. And uh, I think one of the most terrifying moments of my life was simply arriving and there was five or six police officers there and they knew who we were mm-hmm. <laughs> and they knew why we were there and they knew what had happened. And uh, my heart just, just, just completely fell. And then a few minutes later, uh, our, our minds were reeling because we were sitting in a room. We had fallen off of the little bench we were on. Doctor was leaning up against the side of the, uh, the room. And uh, yeah. he just said we couldn't, we couldn't do anything. So at that point... Um, and we just, you know, yeah. like, I kind of assumed that when the police told me to get, to get to the hospital that my son had either been, like, hit by a car or broke his leg. And mm. when they said he was killed by a gun, I, we just couldn't even fathom how they got access to a gun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ethan was 15, if we didn't already say that. And, um, and it did turn out, I guess, that he and this friend had been experimenting with this gun or had access, access to the gun for a while, right? Yes, they did. Yeah. Uh, in one account the police shared with us, it was produced from under a bed. Uh, another incident occurred with a rifle in a front hall closet that the kids were uh, dry trigger pulling, kind of pulling it, ha-ha, and uh, these guns should have been locked up and everything would have been, you know, a $75 uh, pin code gun safe and our kid would be here and uh, the world would be a different place. But unfortunately, that's not the decision that gun owner made. You know, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about, this is kind of a, a, a side trip for a second, but it's worth talking about. So I, I was watching the series uh, on Netflix, Unbelievable, and there's a, one of the two investigators, police investigators, is, lives with her husband, who's also in law enforcement, and you see them every time they enter the house, they put, the, put their gun in a safe, mm-hmm. lock up the safe, mm-hmm. uh, hit the combination. Uh, every time they leave, they get the gun. I thought, you know what? I've never seen that on television before. I've yeah. seen thousands and thousands of cops with guns and bad guys with guns. I've yeah. never seen safe gun storage, storage yeah. ever once. Uh, and boy, that's some, that's something we probably need to make a little progress on yeah. in terms of modeling. Yeah, I think um, I've, I've had a lot of people reach out to me and um, a lot of the moms who said that their child had committed suicide with their um, spouse's um, weapon from work. <laughs> and so I, I know that people have this false sense of security that if you grow up with guns, that your children understand the power of them. Um, but they're, they are teenage boys. They are children. They don't think things through all the way. And um, that's why I've always maintained that as a parent, it is your job to protect your child from mm-hmm. themselves. Right. I, this is in my family, too. My father made a, a very, very serious suicide attempt when I was a teenager. Uh, he did it with a combination of, of alcohol and pills. But when I was 14 at the time, I was searching his car, which he did and abandoned. I was reaching under the seat, and my hands did close around a gun. Oh. Uh, and oh. I was, I brought that out with just my hands shaking. And he, he did wake up eventually, and he said that he had had that in case it was unpleasant or painful. He was going to finish the job that way. So, yeah. so, and, and uh, so uh, obviously, this is all kind of sad. I'm going to play a little clip of uh, you, uh, Kristen, talking in this very vein uh, to, I believe, Senator Cory Booker. Nathan asked if he could go to his friend's house who lived down the street from us. He walked out of our home and he walked out of our lives. His friend's father had three unsecured firearms stored in a shoebox. The boys were posing with the guns and posting to social media. 
Unbeknownst to Ethan, one of the guns was loaded. He was shot in the head and killed, and my world shattered into a million pieces. I was suicidal, and I'm so glad that I did not have access to a gun. Senator Booker, what role do you think the federal government should take in mandating safe storage practices so that our precious, beautiful children can live? Right, so that's a painful thing to hear, but it's the story of what could have been two deaths instead of one death uh, if you'd had the means yeah, at your lowest absolutely. moment. So, Mike, you know, this is, we're going to talk a what, about what you did in the whole arena of public policy, but as as that clip illustrates, as the conversation we're having illustrates, the first thing you had to do was figure out how do I even begin to take care of myself? How do the two of us begin to take care uh, of ourselves? What do we do to even get to the point where maybe we could become functioning people who could go out there and, and, and make some changes. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the process of just figuring out how you heal from a wound that most people just never encounter. Sure. Well, you feel you're on a different planet. You feel like the world that you knew is completely changed because a part of you has been sort of torn away. So, of course, one of the things we do today, we go, we research, and it's not if – you, if you research this, it's not a pretty picture. You see a lot of people 20 years later, it's like it happened yesterday. They say that. So I made a commitment, um, and Kristen and I made a commitment that we were not going to be victims, but we were going to be warriors, uh, even more than survivors. We wanted to be warriors, and we were going to get up and fight and make positive things come out of this. And a few things that uh, I did one day, I just said I, I hadn't gotten out of bed really very much in three days, and a friend said, look, what can we do? Do you want to go for a run? And so my friends Dan and Keith took me for a run. And then I realized that movement helps, uh, uh, talking helps, exposure therapy helps, staring at my son's lacrosse stick, which brought me to my knees. The first 10 days on the 11th day, I felt like maybe I could handle looking at that lacrosse stick and just not falling apart. We, I have a great therapist named Lauren uh, down in Guilford. Uh, I see her every week uh, religiously. It's uh, very important. And we even, we even went into different kinds of experimental, more experimental therapies uh, that have to do with uh, uh, visualization and, and eye movement. Um, it's, it's called brain spotting, right? And it's yeah. it's uh, done partly, I think, at the Sandy Hook Resiliency Center. Yeah, yeah, and if you're suffering, it's such a good thing to know about because I was shocked at how useful it was. Uh, it gets you to tune in and look at a certain place where your feelings just come out of you and, and your, uh, your pain just kind of comes out of you. And you cry, uh, but you, you heal at the same time. It's profoundly uh, – and I'm the biggest skeptic in the world. And I walked out of there saying, boy, I'd like to tell every single person that some of these alternative, these newer therapies – it's not really alternative, but it's a newer therapies. It's very powerful. And the folks at Sandy Hook rated it their most effective therapy to handle their pain. Right. And I think when you're also – when you're facing that, you'll try a lot of things because oh, – yeah. You have to work really, yeah. really hard. It's you have to choose mm. to try and get better because it really is like moving a mountain. And Mike and I kind of had a little bit of different way of kind of healing. I went right into research and advocacy. Mm -hmm. I started researching um, uh, what's the leading cause of death in children, and, and I found out that gun violence was the second leading cause of death. And how 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 is that possible? Um, and it was possible because kids had access to guns, period. Um, another thing that you got to worry about in a situation like this, I mean, we know this from seeing things like Sandy Hook, is it's hard on couples, right? It's hard on a marriage, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. You guys had to figure out. I don't. Yeah, it, was, it, it wasn't really. I mean, it was hard on us that we lost a child, but mm -hmm. we made a pact really early on that we were going to allow each other to grieve. 
any way we wanted. Mm-hmm. So I went to more like, let's go, let's get something done. And Mike did a little bit more traditional with exercise and counseling and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And we just never judged each other on that. So I don't think we've ever yeah. had I think, I think a it's break. hard on couples who, who, who can't quite realize that you're going to grieve differently. You're going yeah. to have days where you're thinking, why is this such a problem? And we just kind of accepted each other and opened ourselves up to we're going to be on a rough journey, and so let's stick together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the reason I'm asking these questions, too, is that coping, if you're going to act, if you're going to change, you're going to go out and meet with legislators, try to go through the fairly harrowing process of trying to get a law passed, you, you've you got to be in a different place, right? You mm-hmm. You had to get well, right? Well, it's interesting. I think a lot of parents who lose a child, you kind of have you kind of like compartmental it off so that mm. you can get get some stuff done. So, mm-hmm. you know, Mike and I would go and we'd lobby really hard and then we would go back to our hotel rooms and we would we would cry, we would break down because we were kind of holding it all together for the day. Yeah. So, but we seem to complement each other in that uh, I do I do a lot of public speaking any anyway and Chris can tell the story of Ethan in a way that just melts people. And I've seen, you know, Senator Blumenthal and uh, uh, Ned Lamont, our governor, and, and, and all, Rosa DeLora, and she just starts talking and people realize safe storage will save lives. They know it's true. Uh, and I've seen her even convince a lot of folks uh, from the CCDL and, and the NRA that at the very least, we all should be locking up our guns with kids around. And I've seen her just move mountains. And uh, I'm just excited to be by her side in this mission because that's another thing you need to heal is a mission. you got to have something to fight for. All right. I want to talk about that mission. I think this is a good place to take a very, very short break. Uh, We'll be back in just seconds with Mike and Kristen Song. Hey, it's Kion Wolf here with Betsy Kaplan taking a second out of your podcast. I know you thought you were totally off the hook from listening to the live fundraising, but we just want to take a second to say thanks for tuning in. And also, please help us keep this coming into your podcast feed. The number to call to be a member or renew your membership is 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. And you have lots of advantages listening to the show on podcast because we're only going to speak to you for about 20 (laughs) seconds, maybe 50 seconds, Mm -hmm. unlike five minutes. So reward us with the fact that we're speaking to you less time. We're taking less time out of your enjoyment of this great show that you're listening to. Give us some support to keep these shows going, no matter how you listen to them. 1-800-584-2788 or go online at WNPR.org. All right, we're back uh, with Mike and Kristen Song. We're going to move now into the story of Ethan's Law and uh, how it came to be. And uh, Kristen, you said that one of the things that you did sooner maybe than Mike did was begin to think about activism, begin to start to research the question. So at what point did you think, all right, this is going to be a law. We're going to change the law about gun storage. Um, That actually came up one day when I was talking to a prosecutor who said – um, the problem with the law is, you know, you have to prove the gun is loaded, and any child that has any kind of dexterity uh, can load a gun. Mm-hmm. And so, really, um, that was one of the big issues in why um, the father or the gun owner was not charged. So, this now just says to everyone you need to lock up every firearm that you have. Right. So, but as you, I mean, it's easy to say that that's what the law says, but it's not easy to get the law passed, although we should say this law passed by overwhelming margins. But, but Mike, I think in the initial discussions, you got 
pushback, uh, as people tend to do uh, in these situations. Like, how, how much pushback was there? I think there was tremendous pushback because mm-hmm. I think the number one objection is I need to get to my gun real fast, mm-hmm. which is part of the problem. So we have guns on coffee tables and drawers and on nightstands all throughout Connecticut and all throughout the United States. We began to make videos, and you could see them on our Twitter site, Ethan's Law 2. Uh, they started to get retweeted by people like David Hogg, uh, and that was a catalytic moment because suddenly this number one argument was being uh, kind of debunked by showing people how you can open a pin code safe or a biometric safe, all of which can be around $100 or less, uh, in two seconds. So it really, it really stopped people saying that. We noticed that after a certain point, they switched to their second best argument, which wasn't a very good one, which is that safes don't work and, and everyone can break into every safe. And I just don't think people believe that. People know that you're better off locking things up. I mean, we wouldn't have email passwords or bank accounts if that wasn't true. So I think once that was the secondary argument we heard, and boy, we heard it a lot at the hearing, right, yeah. Chris? Yeah, we did. They, they would say, oh, my 10-year-old son can open any safe in 10 seconds. And I just don't think people believe that. Uh, it's just- well, it's, uh, it's, it's the deterrent, just like having a right. fence around your pool. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and I think there's also, I don't know how much of this that you got, but I, I think in these situations, what I've heard over decades of covering situations like this is also- there's a strain in part of the American temperament that says, just because this thing happened to this other person, yes. why should my life have to change? Why should my freedoms be abridged? Mm-hmm. Why should, like, uh, this isn't anything that I ever had anything to do with. Why is it being used as a reason to make a change I don't want? You're just saying, yes, you did run into that. Well, you know, yes. We, uh. we had people say, like, you know, bad laws follow tragedies. But I actually did the research. Mm-hmm. And... Eight children a day are dying every day because they have access to guns. So suicides, accidental shootings. Some of the mass shootings were um, guns from their home mm-hmm. because they were not locked out. Sandy Hook is a perfect example of that. Those, right. those guns were in a safe and they were not locked up. Yeah. Were, there, were there people who just said, well, that, that somehow or that that's your fault or that's your son's fault? Or, yeah. This oh, is, yeah. yeah. There's quite a few people that said, you know, all you had to do is – uh, say to Ethan, guns are dangerous. It's like we could solve the opioid epidemic mm-hmm. by saying right. don't do drugs. Yeah. Uh, it's not true. And and then they say, well, we should do education. And look what we've done. We've gotten two Disney shows on their number one rated kids show to portray a gun safety message. This was seen by 20, 30, 40 million people. So nobody believes in education more than Kristen and I. But we also know that if you don't have consequences, a, a rule has really very little meaning. And that's what this is. We're just taking the NRA rule that you should always lock up your guns so no unauthorized person can get access to them and saying, let's put some some uh, oomph into that so that there is a penalty. There is something that happens if you break that rule. But, so, but again, uh, we I mean, we talked to gun owners and we said, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want to penalize you. I hope Ethan's law is never used. Mm-hmm. I hope that the cultural shift becomes that the gun owner pauses before they leave their home and they think about where, where are my deadly weapons and who is going to have access to my home. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, and I also just want to say that anybody who said all that other stuff to you has never had a son. I have got a son. I I know at which points in his life, (laughs) educating him, warning him, creating narratives for him Mm -hmm. to try to help him understand would have made any difference. Mm -hmm. And really, you know, there was just a long period where I don't think anything like that. I mean, boys, young boys, we know their prefrontal cortexes are not well developed. They are, you know, 
particularly vulnerable to to bad impulses. Uh, and so that whole idea that they're going to review everything that's ever been said to them about this subject before they do something is just, that's fanciful. Right. right? We would have no deaths in children from car accidents or, you know, drug overdoses because all of us are teaching our children how to be safe, but they are independent from us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was doing a keynote the other day and I asked the audience to raise their hand if they'd never engaged in risky behavior in their life. And obviously not one hand raised because... Mm-hmm. We have all done stuff that was probably a little bit risky, and Ethan got unlucky, and we got lucky. So let's hear a little bit of what this sounded like, uh, because, yeah, there was pushback um, that you encountered initially. Uh, I mean, this wound up being a a very positive experience, but let's hear uh, an opponent. This is uh, State Senator Rob Sampson uh, speaking about the bill. Obviously, this is a very difficult uh, issue to speak about and even more difficult to speak out in opposition to. However, I feel compelled to do so. Being here all the way back after the tragedy in Sandy Hook gives me some perspective and reminds me that it is not a good idea to make public policy based on an emotional response to a tragedy. It is much more important that we get these things right. So that's the argument you guys were talking about, right? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't. If you really break that down, I think it. I think it's really the logic flow. There is. Uh, there's. It was really not an emotional decision. It was a logical decision based yeah. on research. And I. I began to follow into the advocacy field when I got up off my back and and inspired by Kristen. And we we learned that it absolutely is is the reason why so many of these things happen. And we began to gain momentum when people realized that it was like Kristen said. Uh, in Parkland, that young man came into a home with a with a, a semi-automatic weapon, and the father said, "Yeah, we need a safe for that. You go buy it." So he he had access. It was not safe storage if you give that disturbed young man access to a safe. So in Sandy Hook, absolutely, he came home. He grabbed the gun. It was not locked up. He right. went out, and we all know what happened. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm a. I'm very emotional about this, but I have a very clear, logical way of thinking about things and only want the best for everyone's kids. So I, I think that, you know, doesn't really hold up what he's saying. You guys are, you went into this as smart, well-informed people, but there's an that old saying, you know, you don't want to see how sausages are made. You don't want to see how mm-hmm. laws are made for the same reason. I don't know, as you, and once again, this this might not be the best test case because, in fact, you, this was passed by an overwhelming margin in, in both chambers. People did listen to you. But I don't know, what did you learn, Kristen, about that whole process by which we do get to that point? Well, I think both Mike and I took the position that we were just going to go in and have a conversation with them. We didn't go in and demand stuff. We mm-hmm. weren't yelling. We didn't, you know, we weren't crazy people. So we just kind of went in and had a conversation. I think that that allowed them to kind of let down their guard. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, at CCDL, we were at a, um, Mike was doing a panel. We should say CCDL is the gun <coughs> users, the, the gun owners yeah. lobbying and sort of collective organization. Anyway, go ahead. And so we, we had a panel discussion and, and this was really amazing because we just started having a conversation and, um, you know, they, they, got, they saw us as just parents and Mm. we saw them as parents Mm -hmm. and we kind of all just came to a common ground. I'm sure they did not want the law, but Mm -hmm. they all practice um, safe storage. Yeah, that was what was so fun to see. Like, uh, you know, I was dreading it and they came Mm. in and a guy named Dom uh, Dom Mm. Basil 
uh, and I had this sort of a spirited uh, debate. But in the end, Dom and I sit out in the parking lot and talk for half an hour about the fact we both play guitar. Mm -hmm. And we both think the same exact thing about safe storage except that Dom feels it shouldn't be put into law and I feel that it should. We shook hands. Uh, He was a perfect gentleman and I can't say enough about him. So we found so many gun owners that were – they would agree to disagree politely. They were very respectful. Um, and many, many, many gun owners who approached us and said, we're, we're for this because our kids play in other people's houses. Yeah, and that was, that was interesting when, when we said, you know, would you allow your children to go over to a neighbor's house that had unsecured weapons? And they were like, uh, no. Mm-hmm. You know, and I said, well, how do you know? Mm-hmm. How do you know that that neighbor right. is, is storing right. those guns properly? Um, First of all, I just want to second the, the emotions that you're saying here. I, I do. It was kind of there was over the weekend kind of interesting, interesting where Ellen DeGeneres was photographed sitting next to President Bush. and A lot of people were mm-hmm. kind of critical of that. And she mm-hmm. said in her show, you know, you really do benefit from yeah. being with people who don't agree with you. You okay. know, as long as you can do it in the way that you describe, Mike. I, yeah. Like I get a lot out of talking to people who don't know, don't have share my beliefs as long as we can do it in a good way. So when you guys first got in uh, touch with me, um, you were, I think, maybe about to go to Washington. Um, so since then, you spent three weeks there, Kristen? Yeah, yeah. yeah I spent a lot of time in D.C. And, and again, when Mike and I met with the Republicans, I think that they were all very respectful. Mm-hmm. And I think they all agreed that safe storage is a very important thing. And um, I think a lot of them do want to jump on to co-sponsoring Ethan's law. I just think that they um, need things need to settle down a little bit in D.C. Yeah. She's being modest, Colin. I mean, I, I got to watch her in uh, Senator Pat Toomey's office, in uh, uh, Peter King's office, in uh, uh, Representative, I think, Crenshaw, who was the gentleman with the eye patch, who, that, that whole brouhaha uh, where someone made fun of him for, mm-hmm. for his tremendous service to the country. Uh, Brian Mast, who is, uh, has lost his legs uh, in, I think, the Iraq or Afghanistan war, we spoke with him directly. I got to tell you, Kristen, uh, the survivor story is so powerful. Uh, and I just encourage anyone in this gun violence prevention world, it, it, it always have a survivor come in and talk and, uh, because it, it just, it just stops people. It makes them think. Uh, and, uh, you know, Kristen comes in and she, she she says, you know, we can't change what happened to Ethan, but we can change it in the future. And people start to visualize a better future. And I've seen some very, very tough guys and men and women uh, suddenly very open to the idea of safe storage. And mm-hmm. I'm very proud of her for what she's accomplished. So, Kristen, in your estimation, where's that at right now federally? Um, it has probably 75 co-sponsors so mm-hmm. far, and we mm-hmm. just started. Mm-hmm. Um and um, I think, you know, I, I'm very optimistic. I think it's going to pass. I think it's an easy lift. And I think, like Mike said, the first place I went was to the NRA to see what they suggest to do with your guns. And they actually have a stricter protocol than mm-hmm. Ethan's law. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. All right. So m- more to come on this. <clears throat> and uh, Mike and Kristen are here for the hour. Uh, and we're going to talk also to somebody who sort of looks at this whole question of how do people make changes in a time when we feel kind of individually powerless? We feel as though there's kind of an intransigent network of people who have more power th- than we do who are able to get in our way. Um, so all, all of our guests are going to talk about that after this. Right now we have a short fundraising break, a pledge drive break. Uh, and yeah, I mean, we we do value this kind of conversation that we're having here today, uh, and we know that you value it too, uh, and it's a chance to have a longer conversation about a serious topic. So yeah, if that's the kind of radio that you like, obviously a nice thing to do would be to pledge right now. 
Okay, before I forget today's show, this episode was produced by our senior producer, Betsy Kaplan. Uh, Kion Wolf is on the board, making sure everything sounds uh, great. Uh, and um, tomorrow's show is uh, The Nose. It's our, our, our weekly cultural roundtable. We're going to be talking about two different movies on that show. So join us. Um, all right. So we're uh, back with me in the studio. If you're just tuning in, uh, are Mike and Kristen Song. They are uh, parents. Uh, they are responsible uh, for the creation of Ethan's Law, which is our uh, gun safety law here in Connecticut. They are working for that kind of change now also at the federal level in Washington, D.C., uh, maybe about 75 co-sponsors and now on that bill. Um, and so before we uh, add a third voice to this conversation, um, we were talking about this off the air, uh, you know, about that whole idea, which we're going to talk about right now, about, you know, how powerless people feel and how they could feel more empowered. And Mike, you were saying uh, growing up that Ralph Nader was kind of a, uh, an inspiration to you. Yeah, I grew up in Trumbull, Connecticut. My mom was uh, in the League of Women Voters and she was big, big, big on seatbelts. And she had followed uh, you know, Ralph Nader and the safety uh, data. And so we buckled our seatbelts. And the first thing that I said, and I think when we were with Senator Blumenthal and we were announcing Ethan's Law down in Guilford, uh, I asked everybody, did you buckle your seatbelt on the way to here? And every single person raised their hand like it was nothing, like it was mm-hmm. the most obvious thing in the world. We think in a few years, that's what safe gun storage will be. It'll be you, you put it in this safe, you lock it. It's a pin code safe. It opens in a second. And and guess what? It's a win-win. You get your gun and we can't get in it if we're kids or if we're someone who has a, a behavioral health issue. Uh, and that'll be a good thing. So, yeah, I do think there's a history there. I feel the sweep of history moving towards just smart, sensible, common sense things. And we're just so glad that here in Connecticut, uh, representatives like Sean Scanlon and and people like the Newtown Action Alliance uh, helped us kind of formulate a strategy to get it through and pass it with such overwhelming you know, bipartisan support. Uh, that was just so meaningful to me to see my son's name on a bill that will help keep kids safe. And Kristen, there is that sort of uh, flip that has to happen between the, you can't do that, you can't impose that on me, uh, which was a lot of people reacted to seatbelt legislation that way. Yeah. And don't my make mom me do did. That. Yeah, <laughs> my mother did too. My mother my mother <laughs> yeah. would not wear a seatbelt. Yeah, my mom, it took a couple of years before my mother actually started wearing a seatbelt. And my kids actually cannot fathom how we were just loose in right. her car and we would like roll out the sleeping bags. And that's kind of how we hope the safe storage for guns is that that the exception is seeing a gun outside of a safe mm-hmm. versus having guns lying around your house. Right. So Ralph Nader, who is a native of Winstead, Connecticut, uh, and is still up there in Winstead a lot of times, like last Saturday, doing stuff about this, is a great example of what our next guest is about to talk about, Eric Liu, uh, co-founder and CEO of Citizen University. Uh, he's the author of several books, including You're More Powerful Than You Think, A Citizen's Guide to Making Change Happen, and most recently, Become America, Civic Sermons on Love, Responsibility, and Democracy. Uh, so Eric Liu, welcome. Uh, thanks for joining this conversation. Thank you so much for having me, and um, just really uh, honored to be um, in the company that we're in here in this conversation. So uh, one of the things you talk to people about in your TED Talks and stuff like that and in your books is kind of maybe breaking the question apart. Because if I just sit here, I mean, I have a radio show and I feel powerless a lot of the time, but let's say I'm just an ordinary person and I'm sitting there and I want to make the kind of change, maybe the kinds of change that the songs did make. I sort of feel like I can't do that. The hill is too steep. There's too many obstacles on it. There's well-paid lobbyists who are going to oppose me. There's you know, I just, I'll just never get there. So so how do you break the problem apart or the question apart so you can feel that you have a little bit more human agency? 
Well, I, I think uh, almost everything I heard uh, uh, Kristen and Mike Song uh, saying there uh, is a classic case study of how you do that. Uh, um, you know, in the first place, it's recognizing that uh, um, every one of us, even in the most you know terrible, uh, rigged, uh, lopsided situations, um, has the capacity to generate brand new power out of thin air uh, through the magic act of organizing. When you actually invite uh, one, two, five, three, ten, a hundred other people to engage you in some common endeavor, the way the songs did after their family tragedy, um, you, you change the frame of the possible. Uh, I, I think that's the first and most important thing, that when you think about this work um, as being just you in isolation, yeah, maybe you in isolation, disconnected from everybody else, uh, can feel rather powerless. Uh, but when you actually connect with any other human uh, on a common endeavor that requires common goals, common strategy, organizing, and the practice of coming together uh, to make common plans, you generate power where it did not previously exist. Now then, you get to the next step, and we talk about breaking this down, which is you've got to be able to read the map of power uh, on an issue like uh, gun safety and gun violence uh, reduction. Um, you have to ask the question, well, who decides? Right? That is the central question of all civic power. Who decides? Uh, and the songs understood um, that, well, this is not a thing that my mayor could do. This is not a thing uh, that Congress immediately was going to be the first arena uh, for fixing. Uh, but the state legislature uh, can and should uh, do this. And the legislature is movable. And the legislature is not some vast blob. There are individuals there, including one or two or three who represent you. Um, and, and if you get that relationship built there, um, you start catalyzing uh, a different kind of conversation and a different kind of change within that body that has the power of decision. But the thing that really struck me about what uh, Chris and Mike were saying, um, you know, the, the seatbelt analogy. I mean, yes, today it is the case that uh, you can be fined under law if you're not wearing your seatbelt. But the reason why so many people now just do it as a matter of course, the reason why it's unthinkable for the current generation that you wouldn't buckle your seatbelts it's not really because cops are waiting at the corner to see whether or not you've done it. It's not really because cameras are watching us. It's because it became a social norm. Mm -hmm. And the power to actually shift social norms and to change the sense of what's okay, what's normal, is a power that every one of us has, especially, again, when we organize with others to change the frame, to change the conversation, and to change the story. Uh, again, I think this case study, that, uh, uh, that this living case study that we've just heard with Ethan's uh, law, um, and this incredible legacy that the songs have created for people, um, uh, you know, in the state of Connecticut uh, is a testament to that. And I think, you know, in our work at Citizen University, um, we really try fundamentally uh, to remind people that, um, look, if you say that uh, uh, I'm powerless and there's nothing I can do uh, to make any change happen, that may or may not be objectively true, but saying it almost certainly makes it true. Uh, uh, you know, preemptively surrendering whatever agency or clout you might have, your ability to organize people, to mobilize money, uh, to get legislators and politicians to pay attention, again, to change the frame of the normal and the acceptable. And when you surrender that and see that preemptively, then sure, yeah, you guarantee that uh, you, you're, you're, you're going to be um, the object of other people's power rather than uh, the agent of change. Uh, but when you flip that around the way the songs did, um, you know, all kinds of other things are possible uh, in civic life. And I think this is true across a whole range of issues. It's not just guns. Uh, and I think we live in a time right now where everyday citizens, and I don't mean people with documentation status and passports, everyday members of the community who see themselves as part of the solving of problems in their community are proving it uh, in communities across the country on issues that run a wide gamut uh, uh, that uh, people can actually 
uh, exercise and practice power uh, where they didn't think they had any before. You know, Kristen, makes a lot of really interesting points that uh, apply to your situation. Um, one of the things that I often do tell people is that they don't know how much power they have. That I used to work at a radio station that was really different from this radio station and had a lot of viewpoints uh, aired on it. Well, I used to follow Rush Limbaugh. That'll give you kind of a sense. And people would ask me, well, what am I going to do about this radio station? <laughs> and, and I would say, you know, like if they get 100 phone calls, that's like a really scary day. If they get 100 phone calls, this is a big radio station. It's owned by CBS. doesn't matter. If they get 100 phone calls about one thing, that's a really frightening day for them. And I think people don't understand that, how much power they have to affect big institutions, whether it's government or private business. It's very true. And um, I think we found that out when we, especially went down to D.C. And Mike and I always had um, the objective that we are Americans first Mm -hmm. and then we're Democrats and Republicans. And so um, we really wanted to just build like a community because we do believe that that's the way that we're going to get some stuff done in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. But, Mike, you know, there, there is this – I mean, look, probably before you guys went to D.C., uh, you heard or read or were told by, you know, how, however many people, the NRA has this place wired. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they've, they've got these uh, members of Congress completely on a leash. So what's your response to that? I think it's just an illusion. I think these are houses of cards, and if we work together – we can really bring a lot of people across. And there's so many gun owners who are in favor of background checks or don't yeah. want to see someone who's a danger to the neighborhood have a gun. There's These gun owners are great people. Uh, the NRA is not as powerful as they're perceived to be. There's a lot of perception in politics. And what Kristen and I realized was that they started coming up to us at the very first event. We were in Bridgeport. I still remember it very clearly. Gentleman walked up. Hey, I, uh, I have a gun in my house. Uh, I store it really safely. I have a a certain kind of safe in my car that's like impossible to pull out of the car. I have a 10-year-old child, and, and he plays next door. And I went next door, and I saw a gun on the counter. And I asked the guy, hey, could you lock up your guns? And the guy chased him out of his house. Mm-hmm. And so that told me that this guy was on our side, even though you know he was a gun owner, probably a member of the NRA. Uh, people, people can be reasoned with, and I think uh, you, you have to try. And you, sometimes you have these amazing conversions of folks and it's possible to happen. It is possible, and it's a great time to feel empowered and to go out and to try. And uh, a, a group that really helped us, I think, in this quest was the Moms Demand Action uh, Moms and Connecticut Against Violence. They wear or, uh, red and orange shirts, and they would show up at these events, and my just confidence level would soar because we were all there together pushing for something great. And I just can't tell you how much uh, uh, the, the, the working together, that organizing uh, that Eric was talking about, absolutely, we experienced it. It was almost a, a magical thing uh, that would happen. So, Eric, Lou, one of the things people do, I think, is because it's a little bit seductive these days, is they think, oh, yeah, I was ups- I retweeted that. I was pretty upset about that. So I retweeted that. And I'm also, I'm not going to buy that kind of pillowcase anymore because, you know, I don't agree with their values. I think one of the things that I'm hearing from the songs is like, you have to physically be somewhere uh, figuring out, as you say, Eric, where the power is and how you influence that power. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are times where, you know, digital media and technology and social media um, are a useful part of the repertoire, but uh, there is no substitute for face-to-face. There's no substitute for meeting people where they are, uh, not only to create pressure on them in the presence of the, you know, the orange shirts uh, that, that Mike is talking about there, uh, but again, on the other side of the way that they're talking about, to look someone in the eye and realize 
you know, on paper or on social media, someone's profile may say NRA member, gun owner, and you may assume that you can put them in a certain box. But when you look them in the eye, you tell a story, you share a story, you understand where they're coming from, you realize someone is movable or changeable uh, in a different way. You realize there's another way in uh, to their heart or their head. Uh, and doing that face-to-face is the most powerful way uh, to actually build a sense, not only of, of organizing power, but frankly, uh, of keeping our muscles toned for how to govern ourselves in a democracy. We don't govern ourselves at a distance. We don't govern ourselves in a mediated way. You know, you, you all are in Connecticut. I mean, you still have enough of a New England tradition uh, of town meeting and that sense of town-by-town ownership. Uh, this is not just something you subcontract out to people uh, who you see only on screens. And you know, I want to tell you, too, just uh, uh, as, a, as a kind of the a story, the feedback loop of inspiration, motivation. After Sandy Hook happened, um, a, a friend and a colleague of mine here in Washington State, where I live, I'm, I'm in Seattle. Um, at the time, we both had kids who were um, pretty young, and we were sh- so shaken, uh, both by that massacre uh, and by the seeming paralysis uh, uh, of Congress in the, in the wake of that massacre. And we decided we needed to do something uh, where we live. So we couldn't necessarily get Congress to act in that moment, but we certainly uh, knew enough people and had a sense of how to make change happen in Washington state. And so the very next morning after Sandy Hook, we called a breakfast meeting. And at that breakfast meeting were a handful of activists, faith leaders, educators, just concerned parents and neighbors. And out of that breakfast meeting emerged an organization that would come to be called the Alliance for Gun Responsibility. And that alliance emerged organically out of not only the catalyst of that crisis, but out of this sense of invitation. You have no idea how ready people are to show up, to flex some muscle, to engage and find their voice until you invite them. Yeah. And we inv- when we invited them, people began to show up in incredible numbers. And um, we then, uh, over the course of the next year, um, within a year, uh, actually passed a statewide ballot measure by vote of the people of the state to institute universal background checks. And since then, we've had two or three other uh, successful statewide ballot measures in Washington for extreme risk protection orders uh, and the like. And I want to just highlight one thing about that story, not only that it's happening in a contagious way um, and that, you know, we are inspired by people um, like the songs, and maybe now uh, this story will inspire others, that the songs example certainly uh, will will inspire others to action. But the other thing I want to emphasize is the name of this organization. Mm -hmm. We called it the Alliance for Gun Responsibility. That's a, and that, that is an important point. Eric, Eric, we're pretty much out of time right now. And before we leave and lose this moment, I do also want to mention the Ethan Miller Song Foundation. Speaking of names of things, uh, we didn't get to that. Uh, it all, it's involved in other things besides gun safety, animal rescue, human trafficking, special needs, distracted driving, substance abuse, veterans issues. So uh, check that out uh, on your search engine, the Ethan Miller Song Foundation. Thank you, Mike and Kristen Song. Thanks, Colin. And thanks, Eric. And thank you.